You ever stop to think, uh, what did Jesus, the Son of God, think as he condescended to this earth? Now, I don't know how many have ever met a baby that could speak intelligently before its birth, but that's what the Son of God did. And so what you have in Hebrews chapter 10 is Christ coming from his own viewpoint. How did Christ view his coming into this world? Thus the title of the sermon, The Sacrifice of Jesus and the Will of God. Ultimately, he saw his coming into this world to be that once for all sacrifice to atone for our sins once and for all. And he saw his coming into this world in obedience to the Father's will. Treatments that we receive today are reminders that we are not getting better. We are sick, right? I'm sure many of you, there's some of you in here that you may have gone 30 or 40 years without going to the doctor, but that doesn't mean you haven't been sick, right? And because we go to the doctor, <clears throat> we realize that we're not getting better, that we are sick. And when we think about that physically, we're susceptible to that. Wouldn't it be good news if the doctor came in and said to you, I have excellent good news. We found the remedy for your illness, and you only have to be treated once. And the great news is you never have to come back again. Would that not be awesome news? The proof that the treatment works is the fact that you'll never have to come back again. Well, under the old covenant, every year, on the Day of Atonement, uh, sacrifices were made. That sacrifice for the sins of the people in bulk was made on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But the bad news was you had to come back every year. And in between that once-a-year sacrifice for the sins of the people, you had to bring burnt offerings and other sacrifices to atone for sin. The repeated nature of those sacrifices was not a reminder of forgiveness, but it was a reminder of their sin. The thing they needed was to hear that priest say to them, your sins are atoned for and you never have to come back again. But under the old covenant, they never heard those words. The power and the efficacy of Christ's supreme sacrifice is this. It never again needs to be repeated. Isn't that awesome? Have you ever stopped at Christmas time and thought about that? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would come down from heaven to be the sacrifice for my sins so that I don't ever have to go back to a tabernacle or a temple or a Catholic priest or anybody else to get forgiveness because the great high priest came down from heaven to atone for my sins once and for all. And it never needs to be repeated Again, Jesus is our high priest, and he has accomplished what the law could never accomplish, and it's a once-for-all sacrifice. So when you get to, to Hebrews 10, it is the culmination of all that the writer of Hebrews has been trying to tell the people for chapter after chapter after chapter. We don't have time to read 1 through 9, unless you want me to. It, we'd be here a long time. So... But chapter 10 is the culmination of all of that, and he's been trying to teach them. He's using reiteration to share with them that the great high priest has come. 
what the old could never perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ did in one offering for all time in what's called the New Covenant. So it presents the gospel clearly in Hebrews 10. And it gives us a synopsis of the true Christmas message. There in one great passage, one of my favorite passages anywhere in the Bible is Hebrews chapter 10. But the message of forgiveness and the need for forgiveness is clear throughout the Bible, correct? Whether you're reading the Old or the New Testament, here are three things we take away from that. We have a problem, and that problem is sin. Even if you are, quote-unquote, ritualistically pure today in your own mind, you've got a problem with sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Point number two, the problem of sin has been dealt with through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the teaching of the Word. And thirdly, Christ's work is absolutely decisive. Meaning, it was the final reckoning of the issue of sin. And it was accomplished through the new covenant. And it is perfected forever. So the writer's trying to enforce that. But God is going to give us a door. And he does in Hebrews 10... Uh, to look at Christ coming from heaven and gain a new perspective this morning and an understanding of Christmas. So I love the text of Scripture. Uh, Bob and Beth read, uh, Beth read for us uh, 5 through 7, which is an Old Testament rendering that Christ gives. But notice the entire passage. Are you ready? Chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near to God. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a, remainder, a, a, there is a reminder of sins every year. And verse 4, he just says it bluntly. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Pretty clear how the divisions of this text line out. 1 through 4 tells us that the law cannot perfect the worshiper. Beginning in verse 5, listen to the Lord of glory. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, what's that called? What's that called? When Christ came into the world, it's called the incarnation. It's called Christmas. It's what we celebrate. When he came into the world, he said, All right, here's the Son of God in the councils of heaven speaking with his Father before he ever zips down to this earth. Listen to the word. Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That's awesome, isn't it? Right? A body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Christ, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That would be the Old Testament, right? Now verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, this is the Son of God speaking, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Amen, amen. Once for all. This is such good stuff. So here we have the Son of God speaking to His Father. 
just two divisions today. Real simple. If you picked up a flyer coming in, pamphlet, piece of paper, whatever you call it, you have the notes in front of you. If not, you can follow on the screen. First, the law cannot make us perfect. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory when you read verses 1 through 4. I don't think I need to go over it again and again and again, but the fact is, it is teaching us the inability of the law to deal with sin. It has an inability to make us perfect. Now, when we use the term perfect in the book of Hebrews, it doesn't mean perfection in that you have no flaws. What this means is perfect in the sense of a standing before God. A standing that you have before God. The law, the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament dealings with sin could not give you a perfect relationship with God. There was always that nagging sense of guilt. The law, according to this text, was a shadow of the good things to come. I like good things, don't you? The good things to come, it was a shadow. In other words, the law was incomplete in and of itself. It prefigured something. Now, when you've got a shadow, you have to have a substance in order for a shadow to be cast. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the substance behind the shadow. And whereas the law uh, was designed by God to be a finger pointing toward Christ, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and religious leaders, Jewish, the Jews at the time, they put their emphasis on the finger and not where the finger was pointing. And so the law is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The law wasn't the something. It was pointing us to the something. Y'all getting this? That was the reason it was given. They were enamored with the finger of the law. But the writer of Hebrews is telling these new believers, don't point, don't look at the finger pointing. Look at where the finger is pointing. That's what you have to look toward. So the good thing is the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the way the text says it. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things, the good things is the person and work behind the shadow. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the better mediator who establishes a better covenant based on better promises, on a better once for all sacrifice. And here's how the writer explains that the law could not perfect us. First, he reminds us that the sacrifices could not perfect the worshipers. There's in it, according to the text, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, when you were, when the high priest was going before you on the day of Yom Kippur, you are a worshiper, drawing near to God, and the, and the high priest was giving you your access to do so by the forgiveness temporarily of your sin. And what this teaches is that that could never perfect the worshiper. And he's going to say this over and over in Hebrews. If you want to write these verses down, chapter 7, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 19, chapter 9, 9 through 10. So it never could bring about the goal of the covenant. Under those stipulations, under those arrangements, the goal which was total forgiveness of sins, access to God, and full acceptance to God could never be accomplished through the design that God gave in the Old Testament. It was a shadow pointing to a greater reality. So, the sacrifices could never perfect the worshiper, and he argues again that repetition proved the inability of the law. 
The fact that it had to perform, be performed over and over and over. Incidentally, this probably proves the argument that Hebrews was written prior to 70 A.D. Some of your liberal nitwits say that Hebrews was probably written much, much, much later, like 80 or 90 A.D. Bogus. It seems that the writer has in mind that the sacrificial system is still taking place in the temple because he has it top of mind, reminding them, you're going through these rituals, and out on the hill of Golgotha, the Lord Jesus Christ has already paid the ultimate sacrifice, yet you're going into the temple making these sacrifices that accomplish absolutely nothing because the payment has been paid. So, but the issue is clear here. If the worshiper, be it priest or people, would have actually been cleansed from sin, they would have no longer had a consciousness of sin. It would have been taken care of. They would not have felt the remaining guilt of their sin. There would have been no need to go back year after year after year. Repetition conflicts with finality. Y'all agree with that? An action that is final does not tolerate repetition. An action that must be repeated time after time is absolutely inconclusive. That's not the case when it comes to Christ. But in the case of the Old Covenant, it was a reminder that their sin was still there. They didn't have that bestowal of peace upon their hearts that their sins had been forgiven in full proportion. Can you imagine how those people felt that day as the priest walked in to the Holy of Holies? I mean, what if, what if the priest was your neighbor? You've seen him kick his cat. You've seen him fuss at his wife. I mean, this dude's going to go in and represent me? I mean, what happens if he's not clean? I mean, you know, he's dead, right? He's done so. If he walks in before God and he's not. As a matter of fact, remember, he had to, he had to be cleansed of his own sin through a blood sacrifice of a bull, before he actually could go into the Holy of Holies. So there's this continual reminder of him. Let's say, for instance, you're on, you've been incarcerated, John, right? And you've got 100 consecutive terms of 100-year sentences. Okay? 100 years of 100 life sentences. Think about that. And let's say that you have a tender-hearted parole board. And they say to you, when you come before them, we're going to give you uh, a pardon because we're good-hearted, and you're going to get one of those 100-year sentences removed. How's that going to make you feel? you got to come back again, don't you? A bunch more times. You have to come back again and again and again. Well, do the math. You would still be in prison, and you would still have to come back year after year after year. And even though you get a slip of paper to remove the sentence of the crimes for that sentence, there's still a reminder, a reminder that you've sinned and committed a crime. Imagine for a moment that radical difference it would be if that parole board walked in and said, you're forgiven once for all your crimes. Wouldn't that be awesome? We've lumped them all together. Here's the good news. Someone else has paid the penalty. You don't even have to pay the penalty. Someone else did it. This is the glory. The payment was given absolutely free. It's the gift of God. This is the glory of the new covenant. Jesus said, I will remember their sins no more. The day atonement was another 
parole day without a pardon. And this was year after year after year after year. Christ comes and he pays for the crimes and forgives my sin and your sin if you're in Christ. And he says, I don't even know why you're coming back. The sins are covered. Past, present, and future. Perhaps for others, for some of you, you're saying, you know what, that's incredible news. I am excited about that news. Aren't you? I would say that. Praise God that my sins are forgiven past, present, and future. But for some of you, you're thinking, well, pastor, I'm not that bad. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You're much worse than you think you are. Let's say, for instance, projected up on this screen, I put your thought life for the last 24 hours up there. Mm. How about some of your secret sins we put on the projector for everybody in this church to see? How would you feel about that? So you're very guilty, and you know it. You're a sinner, and that's why you need the sacrifice of Jesus more than anything else in this world. You need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 4, he just comes down bluntly for us, makes it clear, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was impossible for the entire Old Covenant to take away sins. Y'all see that? Everybody with me? All right. It was impossible, that repetition. It, it could not take away sins. Here's what the Bible teaches all the way through the Old Testament. God is holy and righteous, and we are not. We are sinful, and we are separated from the Lord. And ultimately, that old covenant arrangement pointed to the coming of Jesus Christ. It, was allu- it, was an, it wasn't an illusion of hope, a false hope. It was a glorious shadow that anticipated the real hope that was in the Deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to end our Advent season on the 24th by celebrating the Lord's Supper. What is that celebration? Well, it's not a perpetual reminder of our sin. It's a perpetual reminder that our sin has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Right? So when we take that cup, we're taking it and we're celebrating Jesus, not uh, we're not re- you may think about the fact that he paid the penalty for your sin on the cross, but we are celebrating the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper does for us. It doesn't remind us of our wretchedness. It reminds us of the righteousness of Jesus that was given to our account. Now, second part of the sermon. The law could never make us holy, could never make us perfect, those who come. Why? Couldn't make the, sac- couldn't make the worshipers through the sacrifices Perfect. And the continual repetition proved its inability to make us perfect. And here's what the Bible says about Jesus. Point number two, Jesus obeyed perfectly the will of God. Notice how I've worded that. It's important. You've got obedience and you've got the will of God. Way back in the Old Testament, Samuel told Solomon, it's not the sacrifices God's pleased with. It's obedience. That's not just the New Testament teaching, it is the Old Testament teaching. When you get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the law is all summed up and given to us in loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. It is the whole person obeying God out of love for Him, not out of uh, a list of do's and don'ts. Right? It is ultimately the fact that Jesus is able to write those laws in our hearts Not on tablets, but in our hearts. Jesus accomplished this. So Jesus obeyed perfectly the will of God. Note this passage. When he comes into the world, he says. Now, folks, who's the he? 
This means that the Son of God didn't have his beginning in Bethlehem. He's not a Johnny come lately. Get away from the sentimentality of the manger. This is God in the manger. I mean, here he says, before he comes into the world. What's that mean? He had to exist before he came into this world. And as, as Bob and Beth read, he is coessential, coequal. He is of the same substance of the Father. The Son of God is God. And here he is speaking intelligently. The Scripture is staggering in its range. It takes us all the way outside of time and inside of God. It, we're able to look at a divine dialogue between the Father and the Son. That's an awesome thing to look at. Before he comes into the world, he says... Now, I don't think the Godhead was unaware of our predicament, right? The predicament that we were in is in verses 1 through 4, that the old covenant could never make the worshipers clean. So the Son of God is aware of the problem, isn't he? The imperfection of the law, the imperfection of the sacrificial system. There was an imperfect cleansing. There was an imperfect conscience and a memorialized imperfection that existed in the Old Covenant. Scholars will tell you that by the time of Christ, that many uh, Jews who honored uh, all of their life the sacrificial system and even offered those sacrifices had come to the point where they knew that those sacrifices could never remove sin. They knew that. It was a constant reminder because they had to go back over and over and over again. They understood that animal sacrifices were insufficient to obtain forgiveness. The Old Testament just screamed to us. You cannot be perfect with those who draw, are drawing near with that kind of sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats and calves will not do it. It was good as far as it went, but it was frustratingly inadequate. Could not atone fully for sins. So this passage reveals what Jesus thought of his coming. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father perfectly. Here's how he saw his coming. First, he saw his coming in the fulfillment of the word of God. Did y'all note that? He said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Does this elevate scripture? Do y'all believe the Bible? I'm telling you, I wouldn't preach if I didn't believe the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, right? From my radiator to my tailpipe, right? I, I, I believe the Word of God, one, I don't believe that it contains the Word, it is the Word. It is much the Word as if Jesus Christ stood here before you, and you could see Him manifested, and He spoke audibly to you. This is the Word of God. And it's proved over and over and over, uh, cross-referencing, uh, folks, this doesn't happen about wafting something out of the air. Here's the Son of God saying, I am the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. I am coming in fulfillment. And he quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. What a high place this gives us. He's saying, I'm coming in fulfillment. And it literally reads in Psalm 40, verse 6, Ears you have dug for me. Now that's interesting. Jesus takes it and says, a body you have prepared for me. The writer of Hebrews says, a body you've prepared for me. But the psalmist said, ears you have dug for me. And why is that the case? Because the Greek translator uh, understood the creation of the ears as part of creation of the body. I think y'all can figure that much out, can't you? If you've got ears, 
And the same God who gave you your body gave you your ears. And Jesus is referencing the fact that God fashioned his body. And so you can think of the son and the father looking at man's predicament. And the fact of the unsatisfactory nature of the old covenant. And the fact that Jesus Christ, the son of God, was willing to come in obedience to the father and give himself as a pleasing sacrifice. He said, I came in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. So he saw us coming in the fulfillment of the word of God. I want to remind you of something. God's word is truth. Every bit of it. He's got a perfect track record. You can take it to the bank. Every prophecy that God intended to be fulfilled at this present time when you're sitting in your seat has been fulfilled. Every other prophecy that has been prophesied will come to fruition. You can take it to the bank. You need to believe the word. Oh, G. Campbell Morgan once said, you only believe that part of the Bible which you put to practice. Uh-oh. Oh, I believe the word. I believe it. I believe it. Well, are we obeying it? Which brings up the second point. Not only did he see his coming as fulfillment of the word of God, he saw his coming as a commitment to the will of God. Right? It's a commitment to the will of God. Not only did he see his coming as fulfillment of the word in the scroll it's written of me, but he saw his coming as commitment to the will of God. And the scripture says to do your will, O God. Do y'all believe that the Son of God had a resolve to obey his Father? That's clear, isn't it? Just think of this. He didn't obey the Father grudgingly or under duress. He did it with joy. How about the low? Well, when it says, behold, in the volume of the book it is written, it is the term in the Greek, low. Uh, in other words, it's, it's gar- ga- uh, trying to get your attention. It means something that is special, solemn, surprising, is about to take place. I would have to say that what happened in Bethlehem that night was pretty awesome. Wouldn't you? Pretty spectacular. As a matter of fact, I think that the incarnation is the greatest miracle of all. I mean, if God can become a man, boy, that makes the resurrection pretty easy. Right? And he did. So I believe that all of history turns on the axis of the birth of Christ. As a matter of fact, you can't even date your piece of paper without understanding B.C., and A.D. I wonder why they did that. Our world seems to have forgotten that it had something to do with the birth of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here he comes in commitment to the will of God. What an awesome thing for the Father. You know, it had to pull on his heartstrings. When you read Abraham and his only son Isaac is bound and he raises the knife, you know that had to move Abraham's heart, right? Just think about the son, just think about the perfect holy father sending forth the son of God in perfect harmony for all there was no it's total preexistence that means there's never been a time when the son of God didn't exist. And here there's the divine dialogue going on between the father and the son and what an awesome low in the volume of the book. Just think how how awesome and Amazing that. Think about how surprising to the angels it was when God says, all right, I want you to zip down, and I want you to have the greatest choral. Brother David, forget him. He could never, ever lead this kind of choir, as good as he is, right? I mean, there was a seraphic antiphony. I mean, the, the Greek is that there were angels teeming and swarming in the universe, singing the miraculous miracle 
of the birth of the Son of God. I mean, it had to rattle their world, whenever world an angel is in, to consider and think about the Son of God who made them to come down and be born as a baby. What an incredible spectacle that was, the incarnation of the Son of God. And then he says, I come. He did it, in, he did it under the will of the Father, correct? He, he didn't come against his will. He came with his own consent and with his own choice. That reminds me of the verse of Scripture. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. He's in complete submission to the Father, although completely equal, and yet he is consenting to the Father's will. What's the application for us in, the, in regard to the will of God? Well, his joyous resolve in obeying the Father to come down to this earth, to be our once-for-all sacrifice, is the essence of true worship to our God, is it not? What does God want from you this morning? A sacrifice? Be careful. He wants obedience. Boy, is that a Christmas message or what? When's the last time you said to the Father, I'm here in total commitment to do your will? Whatever that might cost me. I'm going to obey you in my life in the menial things. I'm going to be faithful in the little things to obey you. Because there's going to come a day when things get rough. And our obedience may cost us something. And if you haven't obeyed Him in the little things, what makes you think you're going to obey Him in the big things? The height of worship to our God is obedience. It's obedience to the Lord. That's what He desires from every single worshiper in this building today. Obedience. Don't tell me you believe the Bible. But yet we preach it, right, Chris? We preach it. We say, this is what the Bible teaches. Bring God glory. Uh, make disciples. Live for Christ. But then you say, well, yeah, I believe all that. Well, are you obeying? Well, in light of Jesus' obedience to the Father's will, how are we doing in that area? You say, well, I'm not Jesus. Well, he lives in you if you're saved. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, it's not I that lives, but it's who lives in me. Check this out. And the life that I now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave him. There's not a demand upon your life to live for him. That's not a demand upon the Christ who's inside of you. Don't give me any excuses. Hello, Tokyo. Right? You can live for him. You can obey him. Is it going to be perfect? Absolutely not. But what is the bent of your heart? What's the bent of your life in this area of obedience to the will of God? He saw his coming in fulfillment of the word he saw the commitment to the will of his Father. Maybe this morning you've got a kindness that you need to perform. Maybe there's a task you need to perform. Maybe there's a confession you need to make. Maybe there's a gift you need to give. I don't know. But Jesus delighted in doing the will of the Father. And if we belong to him, we ought to say to him, I'm in submission to you, Father. Here I am. I want to obey your will. And here's the third thing. Not only the fulfillment of the word, commitment to the will of God, but Christ saw his coming as the settlement to the only way to God. Right? Now that means that every other religion in this world is false. When I make that statement that Jesus Christ is the only way, only settlement to the only way to God, I am saying to you that every other religious system in this world is wrong. You say, but you can't do that. Yeah, I can. Why? Because the Bible says so. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, 
even if I didn't believe it, the Bible says it. So I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But I believe it, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. That's exclusive. And we're getting pressured. Preachers are getting pressured. Nat and I, we keep driving down the interstate coming from Branson on occasion. There's this big sign up there that says, pastors are not preaching the truth. You ever seen that before? I want to find out what that's about. But I want to tell you one thing. One thing that will come from this pulpit, as long as I'm your pastor, there is no other way to heaven other than through Jesus Christ. Period. Right? He is a settlement to the only way to God. Period. Look, folks, that's why we don't need to worry about soft-peddling the gospel. We, we have in our minds sometimes, well, let's just make this casual approach into the world so that we can give them a little cotton candy so that maybe they'll come to our church. Bogus! Bogus, folks. No one ever gets saved apart from the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Listen, folks, we don't need to soft-pedal the gospel. This community doesn't need to think, well, they're kind over there, but they never give the goods. We're going to give the goods. Amen? Amen? And here's the good things. There's no chance of heaven apart from Jesus Christ. Period. We're going to stick to what the Word of God says. We're going to give the gospel and present it. Why? Because look at verse 10. And by that will, Jesus obeying the will of the Father, dying in our stead on our behalf, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, Say it. Once for all. And I love down in verse 14. For by one single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Isn't that awesome? That God is the only, that the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the perfect obedience of the Son of God that pleased the Father. Why? Because he lived the life you could never live. He lived in obedience to the law and never once sinned. And though he was fully man and fully God, he obeyed his father as a man, completely, without sin. Why? Because we are sinners, and we never could. And Jesus Christ is the settlement because of his perfect obedience. Only a perfect man could absorb the penalty of our sin. The perfect Son of God has come into this world, and as the perfect man... And by virtue of his resurrection, he has been vindicated as the only high priest and the only mediator between God and man. He didn't stop there, folks. The Bible says in Hebrews that he ascended into the Father and he's seated at the right hand in his eternal place that he deserved. What an awesome thing. Now, in conclusion, do you know this morning, out of personal experience, the peace of trusting that one perfect sacrifice by the one perfect Son of God on your behalf. Do you know that peace? Do you understand that in your own heart? What an awesome joy it is to know that you've been forgiven of your sin, past, present, and future. What you could never do for yourself, God, through Christ, has done for you. Now there is, in all of us, a killer that's worse than cancer. And the glorious news of the gospel is this. There is a once-for-all remedy for your fatal disease. And it's through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's once-for-all, for-all time. And you never have to come back. It doesn't mean you won't think about what He did for you on Calvary. Right? That should encourage you to live for Him. It ought to be an encouragement for obedience. 
But you only get saved once. And it's a once-for-all salvation that's done forever. And the text says He perfects you for all time. There's only one way you won't go to heaven if you've been saved. That's if Jesus stops praying for you. And I've got good news for you. Hebrews teaches that He ever intercedes on your behalf. That's good news, isn't it? Right? He is our ever interceder on our behalf. The remedy is perfect, and it cleanses you for all time. Please... This morning, I urge you to go to the one who cleanses you forever from your sin, who takes away all your sin. You won't ever have to go back to that lousy clinic again. No offense to those who work as doctors and lawyers, right? Trust Christ alone, and in Him there is salvation. When I was growing up, I remember my mom and dad instilled in me some uh, ethics. I remember they would say to me that determination... A good work ethic, perseverance, watch this in my family, confidence, preparation, willingness, you know, sweat-stained values can mark your life. And things like, son, if you want it, go after it. You ever been told that kind of thing from your parents? Pretty much you can, you can do anything you want to if you put your mind to it. You ever been told that? Right? Well, that's good stuff to live by. I mean, you got a dream out there, go for it. There's a goal out there, don't stop short. Go after it, right? There's some things in the Bible about that. They were right, but nevertheless, I learned quickly that life has a hard edge to it. It really does. We're forced growing up to face our limitations sooner than later, aren't we? You know, that works for a while, and those ethics are great for us to think about. But I've learned something quickly. I failed and continue to fail repeatedly. Some of the tasks and the goals that I had when I was a child are beyond my reach. I'm never going to run a four-minute mile. just ain't happening. I will definitely be going to that doctor for treatment. I did run one in 525 one time, but the second mile was like 825, right? But the, the issue is... I would love to be like Philip Shuford and speak Spanish. I, I mean, I really would. Now, Elsa, you, you, you know you can speak Spanish because that's Venezuelan, right? No big deal if she can speak it, right? It's a big deal that she can speak English, right? And she doesn't understand me much because of my southernness. But, but just if you've been around Philip Shuford, to hear him speak Spanish, it's, it's amazing. Forget, just go from one thing to another. I, I'm not going to master that. I mean, that's a limitation. I, I want to have that ability, and I guess if I... Here's the deal. I would definitely not be able to do all the languages of the world, right? We have limitations. Growing up, we're wonderfully limited, but we are wonderfully dependent. But we grow out of those limitations. But there's one limitation. You will not outgrow. It's a limitation that your parents didn't outgrow. Their parents didn't outgrow. And their ancestors to time immemorial were not able to outgrow. By the force of human will, they just couldn't do it. And that limitation, of course, is the limitation all of us have, and it's called sin. No matter how much you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try to turn over another leaf, you're not going to remove the stain of sin on your life. Only Jesus, only God can deal with sin. Isn't that really the message of Christmas? Only God can deal with your sin. Would you let him? That's the one thing he wants from you today. Your sin. 
If you'll give it to Him and turn to Him and trust only in Him, that one perfect sacrifice for all time, to forgive you of your sins, something you could never do on your own or no one else could do for you, Jesus Christ did it for you. You can't overcome sin or its consequences. Only God can. Would you let Jesus Christ, the Son of God, do for you what you cannot do for yourself? Amen. That's how Jesus saw His coming into this world. The perfect, pleasing sacrifice for the Father in full obedience to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You that we're able to preach the Word and to hear and to listen. Lord, thank You for a captive audience to the ones in this building that You wanted to speak Your truth to. And Lord, I pray that you would open hearts to hear and, and to think about the gospel and think about that pleasing sacrifice that Jesus made for us. God, as we hold that cup up and that bread and the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the perfect obedience of the Son and that ultimate sacrifice to pay the penalty and to cover, to expiate our sin, to cover it, and also to propitiate your wrath, to turn you away from Judging us the way we needed to be judged, you poured out your judgment on the Son of God in our place. God, we're so thankful for that. So thankful that you were the perfect, pleasing sacrifice. Father, may you impress upon someone's heart, move their affections and their will today to see you for who you are. May we turn from sin and self, and Father, to trust Jesus only for salvation. Father, for Christians, Lord, how are we doing in this area of obedience to your will? You've infused us with life. You live in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is the greatest teacher. And your word says he will teach us all things concerning who you are, how we should obey you. He'll convict us of sin. And God, if you live in us, then that's going to be the case. Father, help us to obey you, to please you. With sacrifices, you're not pleased. But with obedience, you're glorified. God, help us to obey you. Maybe that starts today with someone uh, publicly professing you as Lord and Savior, that first step of obedience. Maybe it's believers who need to walk in a constant understanding, walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, obeying you. Father, help uh, speak to hearts today during our invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.